Welcome, dear readers. You're listening to Time to Read, a Winnipeg Public Library podcast book club. We're recording today from the Carol Shields Auditorium in the Millennium Library in Winnipeg, which is within Treaty 1 territory, the traditional lands of the Anishinaabe, Inanu, and Dakota peoples, and in the national homeland of the Red River Métis. Our drinking water comes from Shoal Lake 40 First Nation in Treaty 3 territory. In this episode, we will be discussing Billy Summers by Stephen King. I'm Dennis from the Idea Mill, and today's the day the teddy bears have their book club. Across the table from me is... Uh, I'm Toby. I'm an outreach librarian based out of here at Millennium Library, and I'm going to be doing my best to not be my dumb self during this conversation. <laughs> I'm Trevor. I'm the branch head at the Louis Rail Library, and this is our podcast. There are many like it, but this one is ours. Very good. You really have to read the book to get all these things out. <laughs> <laughs> That's the idea. A good book can carry me away from an ever-engine ordinary day. Yeah. So keep it down, leave me alone. Close the doors and turn off the phone. Cause all I ever really need is a little more time to Dear readers, we wouldn't do this without you. Are you on the run from contract killers ready to take you down? You probably still have time to read a book and comment on it. And we'd love to hear your thoughts. So you can find our email address and all our social media outlets by going to wpl-podcast.winnipeg.ca and scrolling to the bottom of the page. Hang around until the end of the episode to enjoy our favorite segment, Nerd Words for Word Nerds. Toby's going to tell us about the author, after which Trevor will give us a summary of the book. But first, let's check in with the panel. How are you guys doing? Good. How are you? Tired. Mm-hmm. Had a vacation, and I'm not rested. Oh. I had an exciting book moment recently. Mm-hmm. Um, so I have a bookstagram where I post about the books I read. And on my recent post, which was for The Lincoln Highway by Amor Tolls, which is a book I loved, one of the best books I've read this year, the author, Amor Tolls himself, liked and commented on my post. Holy Ooh. cow. Yeah, it was very exciting. That's pretty awesome. I think yeah. uh, you deserve to buzz market your handle. Oh, it's Toby Hart's books, one word. Yeah, Amor Tolls. Am- that's amazing. Who must just constantly look at his own hashtag because I don't have a big follower base on Instagrams. Um, so we must yeah. just be constantly refreshing it to have found my post, but he it's, saw it, he yeah. interacted with it. I know some authors or just, I guess, celebrities, like they set up Google alerts too for their names. So I'm wondering yeah. if there was something similar to that for, for Instagram, but that, that is amazing. Yeah. I mean, having said that, your review was raving it was you know pretty good. Yeah. It, you were saying perhaps it was <laughs> the best book you read all year it one of them one, one of, of them, them. Yeah. yeah if you had said this thing is a turd he may not have uh very responded. true very true or he might have he might have been oh it yeah. hurts yeah. he might not have even read it i mean he might have just seen the picture and and it's still that is a huge accomplishment well, that is a feather in your cap i i wouldn't call it an accomplishment i think it's just a thing that happened oh, that's, that's cool. neat yeah. that's fun it's very awesome the thing I was thinking about recently, book-related, is it's uh, book awards season. You're aware of that? This seems to be the time of year where different awards are announced or shortlists. And in particular, the one I was going to mention was the Nobel Prize in Literature. The uh, winner was named. It's a French author called Annie Ermo. Erno, pardon me. I've never heard of her. What the Nobel Committee said is it was for the courage and clinical acuity with which she uncovers the roots, estrangements, and collective restraints of personal memory, whatever that means. Hmm. You guys might be interested to know how the Nobel Committee <laughs> picks their books. I found this kind of interesting. They ask for submissions, and they get about 200 a year of authors. And what they do is they narrow it down to five people on the short list. And then the Nobel Committee will read a bunch of stuff by that all five authors. And if it's in a language that's not the language that the Nobel Committee reads, they will get trusted translators to provide translations. And then here's the interesting thing. To win the Nobel Prize in Literature, you have to appear on that short list twice. So you're not oh. even eligible to win it unless you've been nominated at least twice and made this, the uh, short list twice. So I thought... So there'll y- be no surprises ever. Yeah. And, and I guess the idea then is that the Nobel Committee, if it's assuming it's the same people, will have extra familiar with the person that wins because they will have had to write all their stuff at some point in the near past. Unless, of course, they were on the list like, you know, 40 years ago, which is mm-hmm. unlikely. Award season. And congratulations to Annie uh, Erno. And I feel badly for not knowing your work. Uh, I noticed W. 
WPL has a few of it, her books. Okay, well, with that, let's uh, go to the author. Okay. Um, Stephen King, just a, a giant in the world of publishing. His books have sold more than 350 million copies. He's published 64 novels. He's written approximately 200 short stories. There are three separate Wikipedia pages just for his bibliographies. <laughs> There's so much information out there about him. You could spend decades reading everything written by and about him. So this is just surface level, which is probably all we need. So Stephen Edwin King was born in Portland, Maine in 1947. He was the second son of Donald and Nellie Ruth Pillsbury King. His parents separated when he was a toddler, and he and his brother David were raised by their mother. At 11, the family moved to Durham, Maine, so his mother could take care of her parents. He attended grammar school, whatever that means, I think elementary school, in Durham, and then Lisbon Falls High School, where he graduated in 1966. He went to the University of Maine at Orono and wrote a weekly column for the school newspaper. It was there that he met Tabitha Spruce, who he later married. He graduated in 1970 with a BA in English and was able to teach high school. Unable to find work as a teacher, he worked as a laborer at an industrial laundry while occasionally publishing short stories in magazines. In 1971, he found a job teaching high school English, but he continued to write. In spring of 1973, Doubleday and Co. accepted the novel Carrie for publication, which provided him with the means to leave teaching and write full time. Carrie was published in 1974, uh, and that year the Kings moved to Boulder, Colorado, where he wrote The Shining and started writing what would become The Stand. They returned to Maine the following year and purchased a home. Um, thus follows many, many, many years of successful writing with titles like Cujo, Pet Cemetery, It, Misery, The Green Mile, and about a gazillion more. And I don't know why this looms so large in my memory, but I wanted to include it because for some reason it's a big part of my personal history of Stephen King. Um, but it was in his accident where, well, when he got hit by a car in 1999. He was walking on the shoulder of a highway and he got hit by a van. His injuries included a collapsed right lung, fractures in his right leg, a scalp laceration and a broken hip. Uh, his leg bones were so shattered that the, the doctors considered amputating his leg. In 2003, he was the recipient of the National Book Foundation Medal for Distinguished Contribution to American Letters. And in 2014, he was awarded the National Medal of Arts. Currently, him and his wife spend their winters in Florida and the rest of the year at their Bangor and Central Lovewell homes. Those are in Maine. They have three children and four grandchildren. Um, and I just wanted to finish off with this bit from his website bio, which I thought was kind of strange in the, the details it includes. So Stephen is of Scots-Irish ancestry, stands 6'4", and weighs about 200 pounds. He is blue-eyed, fair-skinned, and has thick black hair with a frost of white most noticeable in his beard, which he sometimes wears between the end of the World Series and the opening of baseball spring training in Florida. Occasionally, he wears a mustache in other seasons. He has worn glasses since he was a child. <laughs> it sounds like a missing person report. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's very strange. Uh, an interesting note about the when he was hit by that car. At some point after that, he actually managed to buy the vehicle that had struck him. Yes, I saw and he that. Took it out in a field and he beat it to pieces with a bat. Yeah, I think the worry was that someone would try to like auction it off on eBay for a lot of money. Mm. Oh, I thought it was just that he wanted to beat the crap out well, of the yeah, vehicle. Yeah, I guess that, that too. Him. That too. Because <laughs> he had forgiven the guy who hit him. Was apparently going through a rough patch and was drunk. And no, and had their dog. I think was like had a dog on their lap or something, and oh, was, was like distracted it? by the dog. Uh, is that it? I, I always look to you because yeah, yeah, I feel no, like I, you I know. Think that's right. Yeah. And another thing that was kind of interesting is like off and on. Uh, he was writing a a series that was kind of like the backbone series of all his books called the Dark Tower series. And sometimes he would kind of get stuck on it and stall. And after the uh, accident, when he was actually recovered and going to uh, book tours, people would come up to him with signings and say, oh, I'm so glad you're, you're okay. Uh, now you can finish the Dark Tower. <laughs> I, was, I was so afraid you're going to die and the series wouldn't be finished. So that was like a wake up call that oh, I better probably finish it, which he eventually did. <laughs> Are you listening, George R. R. Martin? Are you listening? <laughs> right. So I, I, I so loved Dennis's summary the, of Billy Summers that you read at the end of the last episode uh, when you were promoting it. I'm just going to read it again because it does accurately describe the plot, but it, it really doesn't go uh, beyond that. So I'm just going to read it. This is Billy Summers. Billy Summers is a man in a room with a gun. He's a killer for hire and the best in the business, but he'll 
do the job only if the target is a truly bad guy. And now Billy wants out. But first, there was one last hit. Billy is among the best snipers in the world, a decorated Iraq war vet, a Houdini when it comes to vanishing after the job is done. So what could possibly go wrong? How about everything? Which is accurate. It is accurate. It is. is. It's sort of, but if you were to read that on the dust jacket, you'd be like, what is this thing written? Like, it's like to have a book you pick up maybe at an airport to read, you know, an hour on the flight, put it down, never think of it again. Now, maybe that is this, what eventually was this book, but maybe, maybe there's more to it. I don't know. I, I'd be curious to uh, hear what, every, what everyone has to say about it because I don't think it's any surprise that I am a huge Stephen King fan and you guys can't say anything that's going to hurt my feelings. So just, <laughs> uh, and Stephen King doesn't need the publicity. So, so just, you know, just, uh, just, let's just be, uh, let's just be open and honest. It's funny too, after the last episode, I asked Trevor after the episode, so there is more to it, right? Cause this is the most generic kind of story you can imagine. Like there's a thousand of these out there. And I thought it was funny that in the book itself, Billy kept referring to this as, oh yeah, it's another last job story. You know, it just really pumping up that this is a stereotype, that this is something that's been written a hundred times at least. And then he just goes with it from there. In this day and age where there are so many stories and so many tropes that have carried on, when you do them, you kind of have to acknowledge them. <laughs> and, and he does that. But do you think Stephen King is given a pass by making his characters realize that they are in a subgenre? And then is he okay by writing the subgenre? Like, or well, I don't think it gives a pass. I just yeah. think it's like something that you have to acknowledge because if you don't, it kind of seems like you're pretending it's more original than it is. Mm-hmm. But, I mean, let's face it, in life, most stories aren't original, at least in the broad strokes, you mm-hmm. know the details that carry it one of the interesting things is i was just reading a little bit about where you know he stephen king hates the question where do you get your ideas but mm-hmm. he gets asked that all the time because he doesn't know where he gets his ideas from but in this particular case for billy summers he was as he would he would think about this problem before he'd go to bed which would be how would a guy who's an assassin get out of a situation where he's up on the high floor of a building like what would be the the way that he could shoot a guy get down and get out without uh, being caught. And so that was a little kernel of problem that he would just, almost like a crossword puzzle or something, that he kind of worked on in his head for months. And that became kind of the kernel of of the story. He wanted to sort of start with that premise, which is kind of cool. It's kind of like the idea of, like, I'm going to make it hard for myself. I'm going to write a book that's deeply in a genre, a subgenre, and then see where the story goes. I also read somewhere that he had that piece, but he also had the image of the the basement apartment and like the window, the periscope, as oh, it's yeah. called. And he yeah. wanted to connect this like killer on the fifth floor or whatever of a building shooting a guy out the window and then this like basement thing. Hmm. Yeah. yeah. And from those two images, the rest of the story flows. So what did you think of this one, Toby? Um, <laughs> well... Okay, I remember a, Trevor uh, says you can trash it okay, if you want okay. to. Yeah. I, I'm a book snob. I'll be the first to admit that I'm a book snob. So, what that means for me is that I I like literary fiction. It's just it's it's what I like. It's what I prefer to read. And that's not to say it's the only thing I read. I think over the past decade or so, I've really moved away from literary. Well, not moved away from literary fiction. Just incorporated other genres into my reading. But it's still like, I'm not reading James Patterson. Like if I want to read some genre fiction, I'll read like Becky Chambers sci-fi or like, you know, Talia Hebert romance, like still more literary genre fiction. And that's not to say I haven't read any popular fiction before I have, but uh, it just doesn't, I don't know, it doesn't do it for me. And I've been thinking a lot about how popular fiction is different from literary fiction. And maybe you have thoughts on that because I don't think... I don't think it's character and I don't think it's story. I think it has to do with language and the way it's written. Like when I was reading this, it just, I'm, I'm, I'm a snob. It seemed basic, you know, like he uses a lot of colloquial language and a lot of abbreviations and literary fiction uses language, I think in just a, a prettier way. And it's not, that's not to say I didn't like this book. Like I thought it was interesting. It kept my attention, I thought it was fine, but it's not a book I want to like clutch to my chest. That that's what I'm looking for in literature. I want to be able to clutch it to my chest. So you're saying 
a passage like the one I'm about to read just doesn't quite reach. The living room is as long as a Pullman car. There are three chandeliers, two small and one big. The furniture is low and swoopy. Two more cherubs are supporting a full-length mirror. There's a grandfather clock that looks embarrassed to be here. And this isn't poetry? <laughs> I mean, yeah, it's fine. Like, it sets the scene. It's, it is what it is. But, yeah, it just it doesn't, it doesn't make my brain, like, tingle, you know? Uh, I, I think maybe we're opposites in that regard. I don't like language that's too flowery. Language that... I don't like when the words take a tension away from the story yeah i agree with you like we are no, none of us like love in the time of cholera like that was way <laughs> too much I, there's there's a balance i guess and i mean it's all personal preference it is yeah. yeah one of the things i liked about the writing was i really felt billy's voice in the especially in the beginning it just seemed like i, I kind of hear his voice in my head from the way it was written i enjoy that in a book I kind of had a distinct sense of the character before I had enough more information about him just from the way the character talked about the world around him. For me, like the book started off like with this very specific direction, but then to me, partway through, it became more of a story about the creative process itself. Like when uh, Billy's cover was to be a writer and then he actually then started writing for the first time. And those, those descriptions of what it felt like to sit down and write and lose yourself in the story and to kind of come out of it hours later and, and it feels like maybe 10 minutes have passed by. I thought those passages were really interesting because you get a sense that that's how the creative process might feel to someone like Stephen King who can just uh, escape a world and go into another world and how it can have such real world effects on, on the person. Just further to your point, Toby, about uh, literary fiction versus popular fiction. I was thinking there was that one scene in the in the novel where he's writing about his time in Iraq and and he was uh, about to describe a uh, I think it was like a a cider scope and he had to stop and he had to make a decision. He's like, if I actually describe what the cider scope is and how it works, then I'm making a decision that I want this book to be read by others. If I don't then I am just going to just say it and then and and then keep writing because I'm writing for myself. And I don't know if this is true, but sometimes I feel like literary fiction is somebody that's writing for themselves. That they they they're an artist, they see the world, they they create something from their perspective, and then whatever happens to it, happens to it. It's art, people may love it, people may hate it, people may ignore it. But then a popular writer is someone like Billy Summers who is gonna describe the, the site scope and say, I'm I'm writing this with, with an audience in mind. I want this to be read. I want this almost to be popular. And maybe one is a little bit more of a cop-out because you're not, you're not a pure... I think there's artistry in both genres for sure. But I thought that that little scene was kind of interesting. It was like a, almost a turning point. And then I think, doesn't he later on... Well, he lets Alice read some stuff, which was another turning point, I think, where he realized then that... Maybe he was a different type of writer? I don't know. What do you guys think about that? I did find the references to writing very interesting. Whenever you see a writer talk about writing in a novel, it always feels like it's them talking about their own work and how they work and what they like about it and what they don't. And uh, I don't know, that's always interesting because it's watching a skilled craftsperson working at their craft. But it does feel a bit ego-driven too, like... Look, I'm writing, and writing is awesome, and it makes you feel better, and everybody should write, and look, just like me. But I don't know. And I, like, all it took for him to suddenly be a writer was for him to pretend to write, and now he's a writer. And and same with Alice. Like, she, you hear, have, she have no inclination that she is interested in writing until the very end when she's inspired by Billy, and she also wants to become a writer. Yeah. Yeah, I always expect uh, Bucky to pop up and say, I'm a writer too, guys. <laughs> Here's my memoir. Yeah. yeah. I mean, I feel like a lot of people on some level would like to be writers. Like, I've wanted to be a writer for a long time. I just don't have any stories to tell. It used to be a joke in some circles, especially when you're reading books. People talk about, like, if you were an agent, you'd always have, you mentioned to someone you're a literary agent, and they'll say, oh, you know, I've got a manuscript. People like the idea of writing. It's just writing is hard. I had a coworker when I was working at Henderson. He writes short stories. He's written a whole bunch of them. He's serious about it. And he's produced quite a, quite a number of stories as a result. And I really respect the dedication it takes to sit there 
in a room by yourself and write for hours and hours and then edit and then put it together. When you're reading a book, it's like, yeah, this is awesome. I can write like this. I'm intelligent. I'm smart. I'm, I, I can use words well. But to actually do it, it's like a, a long slog. I mean, being locked into a room where you have to be for months at a time is maybe a good way to be a writer, right? <laughs> Well, yeah, in Billy's case, it was almost like, you know, fake it till you make it. Like part of his job was to go in deep cover for months until he got the call that the job is on. So he was pretending to be a writer and then something happened. He became a writer. It was like he's pretending to be a good neighbor. He became a good neighbor. He uh, Is it like that thing, uh, you know, beware of what you pretend to be because that's what you'll become? I, that's not the exact quote. Oh, it sounds profound. Yeah, it's it's something out of Nietzsche, I think. Uh you know, mm. if you stare into the void, you might, I don't know, mm. I'm mixing up my quotes. I'm, I'm sure of it. But yeah, if you pretend long enough, you can sometimes become the thing you're pretending to be. But you still have to put in the work. It's like three of us pretending to be podcasters. Yeah. <laughs> we have deep insights into these literary works. We promise you. We've been telling us ourselves that for years. One of these days it will be true. I also really enjoyed the whole uh, like dumb self thing for Billy mm. versus the his authentic self, I guess. Although I was kind of disappointed it was only at the beginning of the book and then of course it goes away because he doesn't need it anymore, but I enjoyed that. I liked the little pretending, you know. He has a lot of identities to keep straight. He does. Mm -hmm. Yeah. That would be challenge and I also like the fact that he wasn't the superman like he screwed up a few times here and there and realized he had messed up um, a lot of times you read stories like this with uh, you know the action hero type and they do things way too perfect Jack Reacher and uh, <laughs> you know completely unrealistic and uh, this was a little more human authentic uh, I liked his his instincts like you know as soon as he met that Ken Hoff mm -hmm. he knew that guy was a you know like bad news he was a patsy and he immediately took a dislike to him and so as the readers we took a dislike to him too and and then sure enough yeah it's like yeah he was exactly what billy thought he was going to be well he was always effing things up he really was yeah. yeah yeah another aspect of the story i really liked is that billy was always trying to work through what was actually happening around him that whole process of sitting there and talking out well okay if hoff's doing this and he told me this one thing but i think he's a patsy Am I a patsy? And he's just kind of working through step by step. And then later he was doing that with Alice, too, where they were trying to figure out what had happened in this scenario or what would happen if they did this. I'm just kind of talking out a problem and then see if it actually happens that way. I enjoyed that process. Well, it's a good way to deliver a bunch of um, important narrative without sort of just saying it i guess you know it has it serves a purpose yeah and actually that makes uh, reminds me of one of the one of my pet peeves is when you go into like uh first person storytelling and then you keep switching perspective all the time it's, it's a it can be a little lazy depending on the story and it, it actually works around that because then you can tell stuff that happened off screen but maybe sort of because it's just the main character thinking about it yeah that's a good point are, are we talking about the ending is that what we're talking about when we change perspective or no is that Oh, you're right. There is this change at the end there. Well, because I, what's interesting is that the first time I read through it, this was my second time reading it. Uh, the first time through, I was kind of totally blindsided. But mm -hmm. the second time through, I knew what was coming and it was quite obvious. But then again, you know, once you see how a trick is done or something, maybe it, it isn't. So I was wondering what you guys thought of the supposed ending slash endings. If we can... Do we need to talk uh, coyly about it? Can we talk openly? I don't know. No, no, no. If you're listening to this podcast, we always have spoilers. So, so, so what I'm referring to is t right towards the end of the novel, the font changes. I mean, the voice changes slightly because we realize afterwards it's Alice writing as Billy in her version of what happened to him, where he... Well, her I idealized yeah, romantic he, version. Yeah, yeah. The, her version was that he, he left a note and he caught a ride with a truck driver and was off heading into the sunset. It didn't feel right. And then we get back to Bucky's hideout and Bucky's reading it. And he says, this doesn't quite feel right. What really happened? And then we get the same story, but then told again from the narrator's perspective, I guess. Yeah. There's, a lot, there's a lot of messing around with perspectives towards the end. No, it fooled me. I wasn't on the alert for it. Yeah. But I was thinking as I was reading the, the false ending that, huh, he's letting him get off kind of easy here. Like, 
I, I expected more consequences, and uh, I thought that it was a little weird for Stephen King, of all people, to be letting off a character easy. And then, no, oh, no, I, he just gave you a little swerve there, and now here's what actually, okay, that makes much more sense. Yeah, I knew something was up, because you get that switch in font that shows you it's like the story that Billy's writing. Mm-hmm. And I was like, oh, why has it switched to this? You know, that, that there's something odd going on. But then also I feel like there's still a lot of the novel left at that point. So I thought, well, this can't, there's got, there's more to it than this. There's mm-hmm. something, something fishy is going on here. Yeah. To use uh, Billy's word, it was dutched. Or he was talking about like if, if something's just not quite right. Like early on when he was talking about the job just felt dutched. Like there was something that uh, Nick wasn't playing straight with him. And something that's important to Stephen King for uh, a number of reasons is the number 19. And uh, in a couple of his introductions to his other books, he talks about why the number 19 has become kind of a kind of a talisman for him. Uh, he started writing the Dark Tower series when he was 19. And ever since then, there have been a number of times where that the number pops up in a lot of his novels in different ways. And so as a constant uh, reader, it's sometimes fun to try to look for them. I sh- I'm sure there were more than what I found. But for example, his uh, hideout, his second hideout was at 658 Pearson Street. So six plus five plus eight is 19. Hmm. And then Bucky's hideout was at uh, 199 Edgewood Mountain Drive. So uh, nine plus nine plus one is 19 as well so it's kind of interesting that those two kind of safe havens in the in the novel his his hideout with the periscope and bucky's colorado hideout are kind of like sanctioned with that number and there may be others too you can kind of look for it he doesn't always put it in so but it's, as a as a reader sometimes it's a, a fun little extra for the uh, for the super fans mm-hmm he had a lot of little references to uh, like his past work in here too there was the obvious, uh, like at Bucky's hideout. <laughs> and as I say this, uh, Trevor is showing off his T-shirt, which uh, is of the Overlook Hotel. <laughs> because they are across a ravine from the site of the Overlook Hotel, which was the hotel in The Shining, one of King's early seminal works, which was also made into quite an impressive movie. What was the hedge painting? I didn't get that. Well, in in The Shining, there's a topiary outside the hotel, and there's a scene where Danny, the the boy, either imagines or it actually happens that the uh, animals come alive and chase him. So the fact that the hotel is destroyed in The Shining is kind of this cool little thing that this this picture somehow has survived as if like the, the evil from the hotel is still the magic is still working because it seemed like those hedge animals were still moving around in the painting mm-hmm. is that in the movie as well that part there's a hedge maze in the stanley kubrick movie but i don't think the hedge animals make it into that although i think stephen king's famously hated stanley kubrick's version and he did a mini series in the late 90s that he claims was much more faithful to the novel but it it wasn't as popular. It doesn't have that cult following of the Stanley Kubrick. And I think in that version, there are the hedge animals hmm. that are moving around. I've seen the movie. I have not seen the series. Yeah. I don't remember the hedge animals from the movies, but it's been a few years. Yeah, I don't think so. Uh, yeah, there was the, the, the reference to the Overlook. And a, a deeper cut was when Alice and Billy are driving back to Bucky's after the final showdown out at Montauk. The spot that Alice pulls in where she realizes that Billy has died was Hemingford home, which in the stand is the place where Mother Abigail lives and uh, is a sort of a source of good power, too. So it's kind of an interesting little, again, just one of those little things that if you weren't a super fan, it wouldn't make a big difference. But for for those of us that have read everything and and love everything and well, not love everything, but have read a lot. It's these nice little almost little winks from from Stephen King and say, hey, I'm going to put this in here. You know, if you. And I can't remember, was there some reference to it in there, too? I felt at some point like he had referred to a clown. (laughs) There was something about a kid dressed up in a clown costume or something when they were driving, I think. I can't remember. There was a clown reference, but I'm not sure. Yeah. Yeah. Anyway, King's obviously tends to write most of his stuff in the same universe because there are often references in his books to other books he's written. Like you say, it's great for the fans because then you have all those little references. But if you miss them, that's okay. It doesn't usually impact the story greatly. 
It kind of makes you wonder, like at the very end of the novel, Alice is looking out over the ravine to where the Overlook Hotel once stood. And she talks about the power of writing. And she says, I could make it real again ghosts and all so i almost make you think oh is there is there going to be an, like another book where alice is the protagonist and does she have the power to bring things back i mean there is that picture i mean billy did throw it over the edge and but i mean evil has a way of coming back i don't know supernatural objects always go away when you throw them out <laughs> isn't isn't that how horror books work <laughs> You just throw it out the trash. Yeah. yeah. It's almost like he left a little door open, though, for maybe a continuation of the story. Or... Yeah. I mean, isn't Billy buried right there, too? Yeah. Yes. Oh, my goodness. You could have a whole pet cemetery thing going on. Whoa. Ooh. I don't think we want pet cemetery Billy coming back. <laughs> oh, yeah. I remember the other reference is he's writing about Benji, which is his own character in the story he talks about when he had shot the boyfriend he had to call the laundry and wanted to talk to his mother who was working on the mangle which is the machine that king worked on when he worked in the laundry and was also a, uh, he wrote a short story that involved the mangler at a laundry so that's yet another uh, reference back to his early work <laughs> one of the lines in here that kind of cut me was uh, after Billy had shot the abusive jerk. Abusive jerk, that's very insufficient. The <laughs> abusive monster. And he was being seen by someone. He said, the woman said that I was a brave boy and told my mother I should get counseling. My mother said that was a good idea. Then later said to me, some people think money grows on trees. I thought, oh, doesn't that just encapsulate so much right there? So much pain and lack of access to necessary treatment for trauma and poverty. Just all kind of combined into one quick line. That's one of the things I've always liked about King is uh, like his line-by-line -line prose I've always enjoyed and thought of as some of my favorite. He can really write, carry the story without getting too ornamental, or he can put in something significant or sublime. But most of it is like just written in a popular voice and easy to read, easy to digest. Yeah, I mean, on a line by line basis, like it, it does flow well, like you, you don't get caught up on anything and have to sort of go back and reread because maybe you misunderstood. But I did find the pacing a little off, like, you know, you spend the first half of the book kind of leading up to the first assassin. And then after that, he's like holed up in the basement doing his writing thing for a while. And then there's the Alice thing. And then they go to Bucky and then they go kill Nick and then they go back to Bucky. And it just like it's a lot of a lot of up and downs and just like a lot of lulls, I, I felt. I did feel like the novel could have been shorter by a fair bit. And it, it did have like a lot of rolling stories like in my mind going into it. I thought most of it was going to be about the assassination and the escape. But it's like, no, it's the assassination story. It's the hideout story. It's the revenge tour. It's a bunch of stuff, which. I mean, that's life. You rarely have clean-cut stories that don't have overlap in them, but uh, it wasn't what I was expecting. And yeah, I agree the pacing was a bit suboptimal. Yeah, I totally agree with that. It, it did not follow the sort of the expected almost model of a thriller. Uh, it did up until the point of the assassination. And then after that, it was almost like I didn't know where it was going to go. Like that, all that sort of summer, the rising action, if you want to call use that term of of him getting closer to the, the date where he's going to have to actually kill this guy and blow his cover and leave town. That all felt very kind of formulaic. And then the moment that Alice is dropped on his literally on his doorstep and he has to make a decision. Do I go out there? Do I intervene? Do I risk it? Then, to me, I didn't know where the story was going after that. And you're right, there were those moments. But I thought those, some of those low moments were really beautiful. Like, there was, there was one moment, I think, when Billy and Alice are driving west, and she sees the Rocky Mountains for the first time. And she just, like, gasps because of the, the panorama. And I know myself, like, from driving west, I haven't done it through the States, but, like, when you get to Calgary, and then you just see, the, like, the ridge of the Rockies, like, every time... It takes my breath away. And every time I think, well, next time it's not going to take my breath away. But every time it does. And then a couple of times Alice was saying, I could live here. Mm -hmm. I could really live here. And yeah, the pacing was wrong. But to me, I took those little moments as just like these nice little almost like vignettes that were maybe, yeah, you could probably have cut them for pacing and, and stuff. But I, I'm kind of glad they were there because they were little moments just to kind of just enjoy. 
That's the thing. I didn't not enjoy any of it. It's not like I'm like, oh, they should have cut this whole chapter or yeah. anything like that. But I know each thing kind of felt like the climax. Like it was like, okay, <laughs> shot the guy, and then it's like going after Nick, and then oh, I have to go after this guy out in New York. Like you know, it just it did seem like, and then and then and then. I totally agree. Yeah. And then they thought the one guy was killed, but no, actually, was it a fat farm? And <laughs> there was a lot of fat phobia in this book. Dirty yeah. pigs. Yeah, that yeah. was not cool. That's right. And, not cool, and, Stephen King. And one of Billy's disguises was a was a fat guy. Yeah, fat suit. Yeah. Well, yeah. it was a pregnant. A pregnant, pregnant exactly. Right. Suit. Yeah. 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 Which just gives you, I guess, the fat in the front, but nowhere else. Oh uh, yeah. Well, you have to pretend to walk differently too. Yeah. So you know. And there was a lot of, you know, well, there's a disguise, but uh, a woman could see through it. There was a lot of mm. um, this yeah. differentiating. And also this whole, okay, the Billy-Alice relationship. Oh, so gross. Like, as soon as that started, it's like, oh, where are you going with this? Where are you going to go? Where are you going to go? Please be careful. Please be careful. But I never crossed the line. But no, the, but he's accidental he's intimacy, like, whoops, we have to share a bed together oh, yeah. and cuddle. I and accidentally like, have an erection. Yeah, like, <laughs> oh, whoops, Billy, we're Billy, naked. Do you, do you want me to help you? Do you want me to help you out, buddy? You know, it's like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, yeah. we're we're skating along and cringy. Billy pretty much yeah. had to die <laughs> <laughs> just to keep from crossing a line. Oh. And the and the and the kind of the only way it's kind of the saving grace for for Bucky is they kind of intimate that he's gay. Remember uh, at one point, and so that there wasn't going to be any type of like hanky panky between Bucky and Alice. Well, there was never yeah. the tension between Bucky and Alice. No, that there was I don't think Bucky ever was Billy sleeping naked uh, next to. Uh, <laughs> Yeah, and, and of course, this is Stephen King. This is a man who had a, uh, a gangbang situation among children in it. Oh. Which is one of the most gratuitous and poorly thought out passages of any Stephen King book I've ever read. <laughs> I remember reading it the first time I was fairly young, and I'm like, what the hell is this? Yeah. That, I mean, compared uh, I to that, uh, this seems fine. Yeah, but that, um, that's the thing. When I'm reading it and it's starting out, it's like, well, I know where he can go. I know where he has gone. It's like, are you going there? <laughs> he does a very careful job, or he's very careful about, like, it's sexy, but it's chaste. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I, that kind of goes part way to the heart of the whole dilemma about Billy, who only kills bad guys. You know? It's like, yeah, he's an assassin. He murders people for money, but only people who deserve it. That's always a really tricky kind of thing to say. And uh, I mean... You know, we live in a culture where there's lots of movies and books and such where the hero is not really the type of person you'd call good in real life, right? Like, I, I've read a lot of thrillers and action things, and, you know, I enjoyed watching Schwarzenegger movies and Stallone movies and stuff, but they kill a lot of people, and it's not really good. And that whole kind of debate goes along with this one, too. And Billy brings up the subject a lot himself. It's like, well, maybe I'm a bad guy, too. And it's like, yeah, yeah, Billy, you kind of are, even if you're not the worst guy. But I, I, I did find the dance interesting, the way he kept kind of holding it out and talking about the morality of it, but also putting it aside because it is an action story, and in the end, he's going to kill the bad, the badder guy and then pay for it by dying. And, I mean, to be fair to Billy, when he went to exact his revenge against Nick... He really only killed the people that he absolutely had to or injured, right? Like he he killed that uh, what was his name Dana Edison in the washroom coming mm-hmm. out because that guy was, it was either kill or be killed. Yeah, the little man bun. The little man bun, yeah, yeah and the little uh, John Lennon glasses or whatever. <laughs> and uh, but he didn't kill Nick. He uh, should have though. Like I found that really weird that he didn't kill Nick. Wasn't he setting out to kill Nick and then he was like, actually, you can live. Well, he was setting out to get his money. I thought. But he was so angry, and he'd been yeah. set up, and he's like, I'm coming for you, Nick. And then what, he was like, oh, actually, no. What kind of bothered me, too, about that whole thing was that, like, it was he so well thought out. But then <laughs> that one guy that ended up being the accountant, he just bolted, mm-hmm. and you never heard about him again. Like, Good I was point. like, I would be, if I was Billy, I'd be like, where'd that guy go? Like, well, that was the loose end. Well, that guy ended up transferring the money for him. Well, yeah, Remember but he didn't know like, at the time. No, he didn't no. know that, like, if he didn't, because Nick did say later, it's good you didn't kill that guy, because he's the guy that knows all the wire <laughs> transfers. But I mean, like, that seemed like a huge loose end. There were a few loose ends. Yeah. Uh, like, you know, there was the whole, okay, 
Hoff tells him there's a fire going to happen in uh, yeah. one town over. And it, they kind of tie it in the end to the, the Rupert Murdoch stand-in yeah. um, that they... <laughs> They made it really, really obvious. Yeah. yeah, that's Rupert Murdoch. Yeah, it's Fox News. Yeah, wouldn't you like to have him murdered by a Stephen King protagonist at some point? But, the guy who was into, like, young girls? Yeah. Was yeah. that Rupert Murdoch guy? Well, okay. yeah, he's a media empire that has a conservative host that are always talking all the time. It's like, yeah, he's referring to Murdoch or, or a character like Murdoch. Mm-hmm. Um, obviously, it's not Murdoch because he wouldn't be accusing him of being a pedophile. Yeah, there were, there were a few loose ends here and there that just kind of popped up and then disappeared, and maybe they tied in, sort of, but it was kind of loose. A few things a little sloppy. But maybe that that supports your observation, Dennis, that Billy is a guy that makes mistakes, too, that he's not the perfect killer, that, that he's a, a guy that, you know, even though he thinks things out, momentary lapse of judgment would actually worked out for him because he let the uh, accountant go. And, you know, I'm being critical of him leaving some loose ends, but also life has a lot of loose ends, too, that don't quite make sense and don't tie up nicely. But he's supposed to be this perfect assassin. Like, how can a perfect assassin have all these loose ends? Well, that's the last job, you know, and the last <laughs> job goes off for some reason. It yeah. just happens. It's Oh, yeah, and that's another fun fact. <laughs> you know, his last job, shooting Joel, uh, whatever, that was his 19th hit. There's oh, 19 yeah. again. So <laughs> just... Would you guys think, I mean, Stephen King certainly doesn't shy away from politics on social media. He, uh, on Twitter, he has been unapologetically critical of uh, Donald Trump. And you can tell in this novel, he references Trump often. What did you guys think of that? Did that add to the realism of the story? Did it kind of date it? Because uh, now, you know, we're past that with Trump being uh, the president, hopefully. Well, he uh, dated it very specifically because this was in... 2019 and he even referred to you know in a couple of months everybody would be sheltering at home and so he's definitely placed it in a very specific time period well i read an interesting thing about that because he was actually writing the novel in early 2020 he was going to set it in 2020 and then for example you know the uh, people that had the upstairs apartment on pearson street how they come into some money and they go on a cruise and he realized, well, I can't, I can't have them go on a cruise. Everything's shutting down. So then, but he had already written a lot of it. So, so he just, his solution was kind of simple and and smart. He just set the novel a year earlier than he was. So it's in 2019 mm-hmm. when all those things could happen. But he does have those illusions. Like it's hard to believe in six months this parking lot will be empty or whatever. And yeah, yeah. yeah. But anyway, yeah. I don't know if that what you thought about the whole Trump thing. I thought, based on what I know of his, uh, like you said, he's, he's very outspoken about it. I've seen many of his tweets where he's uh, trashing Trump. I thought he was very restrained. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I thought it was fine. I, like, it's not like Trump is going to read this and his fans know he's anti-Trump. Mm. So, like, well, why why bother? Yeah. Yeah, but it does place it in the real, well, I want to say the real world, but at the same time, the Overlook Hotel was there. So, it places it in his world and places his world very close to our world, just, you know, with a lot of monsters and things and ghosts and nice guy assassins. Yeah, I guess, you know, depending on what Stephen King book you read and, and the year that he was writing it, he, he throws pop culture references in. Like, if you read a Stephen King book from the late 80s, early 90s, he puts a lot of, like, Twin Peaks references in because he was a huge Twin Peaks fan, uh, which obviously wouldn't make a whole lot of sense if he was to put that into a novel he writes. So I guess it's just sort of maybe him taking, you know, the world around him and processing it and adding it to, I guess. Yeah. I, I'm not sure how I feel about it. That's why I was interested to... Making his books artifacts. Yeah. Yeah. Well, we've gone on for a bit. So uh, do we have any final statements we'd like to make about the book? Would you recommend it? Don't have to ask Trevor that. He already <laughs> recommended it. <laughs> like I said, popular fiction isn't really my, my thing, but I did. I enjoyed it. I thought it flowed like it flowed. It mostly flowed well. It kept my interest. I don't want to yuck anyone's yum. So it's like, it's fine. It's, 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 it's popular fiction. It is what it is. I have a new phrase now, yuck anyone's yums. <laughs> um, yeah, I enjoyed it. I uh, found it readable and uh, kept me going along with it and uh, made me think of maybe trying a few more Stephen Kings. I read a lot of his stuff, his early stuff back in the day, and I haven't read him for at least a decade or two now. But it's good to see he's still got his writing chops and he's trying different kinds of stories. Kind of curious what else he's been doing lately. 
Well, Dennis, I'm happy to provide a curated, uh, selected <laughs> bibliography because there are some pitfalls. I have to say, in the last 20 years, there have been some not great books. Yeah. Uh, but I'm happy to point out the the gems. And I also want to say I'm delighted that neither one of you pointed out that the initials of Billy Summers is BS. <laughs> so that in itself is a small victory. Okay, so let's move on from there to our next segment, which we cleverly called, Can You Tell Me a Book I Would Also Like? Who's got a good book rec? I don't have a book. I have a TV show. Ah. Um, have either of you seen Barry? No. No. Oh, I think you would both like it. Um, it's on HBO, and I just pulled the summary from the website because I think that will summarize it better than I can. Um, so Barry is a dark comedy starring Bill Hader as a depressed, low-rent hitman from the Midwest. Lonely and dissatisfied in his life, he reluctantly travels to Los Angeles to execute a hit on an aspiring actor. Barry follows his mark into an acting class and ends up finding an accepting community in a group of eager hopefuls within the L.A. theater scene. He wants to start a new life as an actor, but his criminal past won't let him walk away. Can he find a way to balance both worlds? Hmm. That's one has uh, Henry Winkler in yeah. it, too, right? Yeah, yeah. so Henry yeah. Winkler plays the act- acting teacher, and it's if you like dark comedy, it's it's wonderful. And Bill Hader is, is great, and yeah. Great yeah, show. it sounds like it would have like a like a real a Billy Summers vibe, kind of. Yeah, I mean, it's more comedy yeah. um, than Billy Summers, but yeah, I mean, it's about an assassin, so. Oh, they, they could have totally written Billy as a comedy, too. He was, he was close there. He could have done it. <laughs> well, my book recommendation comes from Billy Summers' smart self. His dumb self, he likes to read Archie comics, but his smart self, he seems to be carrying around a copy of Therese Raquin by Emile Zola. And so I thought, well, you know what? I'm going to read this book and see what, if I could maybe see if there's some similarities or parallels to Billy Summers or why did Stephen King choose this particular book as the one that, that Billy's, you know, the, the smart self Billy is reading or has in a suitcase or whatever. So anyway, as you, my bookmarking show, I'm partway through the book, so I haven't completely finished it. But I can tell you this, that it is, as uh, Toby might say, it's a bit horny, I have to say. <laughs> there, there, uh, there's this guy, Laurent. He's really, in his mind, got the perfect setup. He's having an affair with Therese Reckhan. So he goes over to her place in the afternoon for hanky-panky, and then he goes back to work. And then he goes home with Therese Rakan's husband, Camille, because they're buds. And so he has that friendship with Camille. But then get this, he goes home and uh, Camille's mother, they all live together. She treats him like, this, uh, like a son. So she makes meals. She makes him, uh, him feel welcome in her house. So, so this Laurent guy, just like Billy Summers, uh, playing different roles he's playing different roles to different people. He's uh, the lover, the best friend, and the son. And, and you may ask yourself, how long could he keep this up? Well, the book says eight months, which is probably about seven months and three weeks longer than you'd think it would uh, keep up. And then, and then it all starts to fall apart on him. So to, to paraphrase my summary of uh, Billy Summers, what could possibly go wrong? Everything. Mm-hmm. So uh, I am enjoying it. Although I have to say, when we talked about literary fiction versus popular fiction. I started reading this book on as an ebook from Overdrive and the the translation was like super fancy. Like it was using words like countenance instead of face and stuff and I was like, <laughs> ah, I can't get into this. So I, I got a different translation which is written in much more plain language and I'm enjoying it much more. So uh, anyway, I don't even know who the who the translator is. Someone called Robin Buss. So my recommendation is Therese Rakan, and look for the Robin Bus translation. Mm-hmm. So uh, one of the subplots of Billy Summers was Billy writing a slightly fictionalized version of his life story. And that's the inspiration for my book recommendation this month, Ham on Rye by Charles Bukowski. It's the only Bukowski book I've read. It was recommended to me like 20 years ago by a coworker. So shout out to Steve Lomas. It's been a while since I read it, so I'm just going to take the summary from Goodreads. Uh, In what is widely hailed as the best of his many novels, Charles Bukowski details the long, lonely years of his own hardscrabble youth in the raw voice of alter-ego Henry Chinaski. From a harrowingly cheerless childhood in Germany through acne-riddled high school years and his adolescent discoveries of alcohol, women, and the Los Angeles Public Library's collection of D.H. Lawrence, Hamon Rye offers a crude, brutal, and savagely funny portrait of an outcast's coming of age during the desperate days of the Great Depression. I don't remember 
a lot of the story because it's been so long. It's one of these slice of life things where it's not it's not really a plot. You're following a young man as he goes from childhood to adulthood and uh, makes his way in the world. And uh, it is apparently very autobiographical. Parts of it did stand out, though. I remember when he was a kid, apparently his dad made him cut the lawn and the lawn, all of the grass had to be below a certain height. And if even a single blade of grass was above that height when measured by a ruler by his father, then he would get a beating. So he would like describe mowing the lawn in multiple directions and going along with scissors uh, afterwards to try to get the tips. And still, there was always a reason to catch a beating until the day finally when he was big enough to fight off the beating. And that's when he went off on his own in the world. Uh, that scene really stuck with me. Uh, the writing is, if I remember, raw. Bukowski is one of those like uh, tough guy readers like Hemingway, uh, you know, hard drinking, um, uses a lot of coarse language, like the manly man, but he wrote a lot of poems. So it's okay to read them if you're a manly man, because it was written by a manly man. He also writes a lot about poverty and the working class. It's a product of its time. Some of the parts might be a little rough reading, but uh, it's it was really good. Um, I don't know why I didn't pick up any of the other ones, but... <laughs> <laughs> uh, I was reading a lot of different stuff at that time, but it was a good book. So if you liked that aspect of the story, you might enjoy Ham on Rye by Charles Bukowski. And now it's time for everyone's favorite segment, Nerd Words for Word Nerds, wherein we talk about words or phrases that have captured our hearts or just interested us a little bit. Well, I've, I've made reference to how Stephen King likes to refer to other Stephen King books in his books. And sometimes you'll hear that referred to as Easter eggs. And I was kind of curious as to where that term Easter egg, not the, not the Christian sense of it, but the, but the pop culture sense of it came from. And it's interesting that it often is given credit to an Atari game called Adventure from 1979-1980, because what happened was back in the 70s, Atari or video games would not give specific credit to creators because they didn't want other rival video game companies to know who was the actual creative people, so they would be kind of headhunted to other companies, or also they would be a way that the management wouldn't have to pay royalties to particular people. So because of that, the creator of Adventure, the Atari game, he put a little gray pixel on a gray background in the game that if the right person found it and dragged it to another spot, it would take you into a room that said, created by Warren Robinette. And he put it in there, and it wasn't until a year later that a 15-year-old kid found it and reported it. And after that point, Warren had already left and gone to a different uh, video game company. But that was generally considered the first really well-known Easter egg. And it was called that because the manager at Atari, one of the managers there, Steve Wright, said, no, keep it in. He liked the idea. He said, it's like looking for Easter eggs on Easter morning. And uh, the other reason they kept it in was because it would have cost $10,000 to remove it. <laughs> and uh, that was too much for Atari to deal with. So anyway, I thought that was kind of an interesting story about how Easter eggs began. And then, of course, it kind of has blossomed now. You know, a popular thing in the 1990s was to have the hidden track on uh, CDs. Mm -hmm. uh, and uh, sometimes if you have DVDs or Blu-rays, they're Easter eggs, which are most of the time they're not that great there may be uh you know uh cut scenes or 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 deleted scenes or that kind of thing one that's kind of interesting is the movie memento by christopher nolan if you're familiar with it it's it's sort of told in reverse order because because the main character has amnesia so you don't really know the whole story until you get to the very end to see if his decisions are good or not so there's an easter egg in there where if you find it it will play the movie in chronological order so you get to see it which is which is kind of cool so and one other easter egg i want to mention is in the most recent season of stranger things there is a pizza van and the number that's on the pizza van is an actual phone number. So if you call it, you'll get a recording of the actor that plays the guy that works at the pizza place <laughs> with a message. So anyway, Easter egg. Cool. I think that's more interesting than my word, which is a concept, I guess. It's the concept of naturalism, mm. which was inspired by Therese Requin, which Billy is reading throughout the novel. Emile Zola, who wrote Therese Requin, is considered the best-known practitioner of the literary school of naturalism. So I thought, what is naturalism? It's a style and theory of representation based on the accurate depiction of detail, which 
sounds kind of boring because who wants to who wants to read the accurate depiction of detail? But naturalism rejected romanticism and emphasized observation and determinism, which is when a character's fate has been decided by forces beyond their control. It's a very like the world doesn't care about you kind of concept. And I'm interested in the ways naturalism works in this novel. I don't think Billy Summers is an example of naturalism, but I don't think Stephen King just chose this book for no reason. I mean, I think we see it a little bit, especially like in the two endings. There's like the more romantic fictional fictional ending and then the more grim, real naturalist ending, I suppose. But I don't know, maybe maybe him choosing this book for Billy was more about the multiple identities of that character. <laughs> Who knows? But now we all know what naturalism is. May also be a reference to the fact that when Alice shows up and he feels like he doesn't have a choice but to go rescue her because that's his character at that point. He's the nice guy. He's not trying to hurt anybody. He's, he's a really pretty good guy, right, aside from the murders. And he doesn't want to have to rescue her. He wants anybody else to show up and rescue her. But based on his character, he has to go and do that. And at that point, all the other stuff goes into motion, and he doesn't have a choice anymore because he has to. So maybe that? Maybe. I don't know. Might be stretching. I was completely unprepared for the nerd word, so I have quickly picked one that has interested me in the past, but I don't have anything fancy to say about it. Uh, the word is quiescent, uh, which I like because it's a Q word and it sounds quite lovely. It's an adjective meaning quiet, still, or inactive, which are also things I love. Being quiet and still and not having to do anything is my idea of heaven. So quiescent. Like Billy's uh, basement hideout or, or Bucky's mountain retreat. Yes, they both sounded wonderful. <laughs> also, you know, he liked the basement suite because people wouldn't look in a basement window as they were walking by. Not true. I look in those <laughs> all the time. I go out for walks all the time, and if your window is open, I'm looking in to see what you're doing or what your place looks like, just so you know. Okay, I don't know why people leave their curtains open. I close mine because I assume someone else is going to come and look in the same way I am. And unfortunately, that's all the time we have this month. Thank you so much for joining us, dear readers. For next month, we're going to read and discuss The Rakes by Scarlett Peckham. She's a Rakes on a quest for women's rights. Serafina Arden's passions include equality, amorous affairs, and wild, wine-soaked nights. To raise funds for her cause, she's set to publish explosive memoirs exposing the powerful man who ruined her. Her ideals are her purpose, her friends are her family, and her paramours are forbidden to linger in the morning. He's not looking for a summer lover. Adam Anderson is a wholesome, handsome, widowed Scottish architect with two young children, a business to protect, and an aversion to scandal. He could never, ever afford to fall for Serafina, but her indecent proposal, one month, no strings, no future, proves too tempting for a man who strains to keep his passions buried with the losses of his past. But one night changes everything. What began as a fling soon forces them to confront painful secrets and yearnings they thought they'd never have again. But when Serafina discovers Adam's future depends on the man she's about to destroy, she must decide what to protect, her desire for justice or her heart. I'm so excited. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's not an assassination getaway story, but hey. Eh? Sounding a little tense. A lot of things are going to happen. Yes. Have comments or book suggestions for us? Send us an email. You can find all our contact info at the bottom of the page at wpl-podcast.winnipeg.ca. You can also find all our past episodes there, too. If you haven't already, subscribe to Time to Read on your favorite podcasting service and maybe leave us a review. Tell your book-loving friends about us, too. And until next time, make sure you find Time, time to Read. stuff and you're not really sure why they're suggesting it but it's exactly the thing you want to see i have an example of this i now follow a man who is probably i would say in his early 60s 
and all his Instagram is just short videos. They might originally have been TikToks. I'm not sure of him roller skating around London. Hmm. And he had some kind of, I guess, a selfie stick or whatever. And it's just footage of this dude, you know, just roller skating. And he always put some, you know, funky music to it. I'm like, I didn't realize how much I needed to see that. It's a kind of a very joyous, simple thing to see. 